Brought to you by Accenture Extended Reality. This is Field of View. Hello and welcome to our new episode of Field of View. My name is Nick Rosa from Accenture. And my name is Daniel Colliani from the Academy of International Extended Reality. And as we said, this is a new episode of Field of View where every week we interview SMEs and people that are operating in the field of extended reality and the metaverse. Yeah, I mean, today we've got someone who probably he, he doesn't just uh, live in the realm of SMEs today. Someone that's done some really amazing stuff uh, with the power of augmented reality uh, for the metaverse, I guess. Absolutely. And uh, we, we have a, a creative lead from uh, Google, uh, some, a, a person that has been working many years in the company and has been working a lot in the field of immersive technologies, especially in order to help and support campaigns and clients to use this kind of emerging technology for their marketing purposes and for their branding purposes. Certainly, and born and raised in the French Alps and newly appointed father, uh, Matthew Lorraine. Congratulations. Happy on here. Hi, Matthew, how are you doing? Hey guys, thanks for having me, I'm good. Good to see you. Good to see you and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to run the podcast with us. I know that we've been postponing this many times because of COVID, because of you becoming a father, because of work and so on, but finally we made it, we are here and we are super excited about uh, hearing everything about all the exciting stuff that you're doing there at Google. Yeah, it's been a, a busy end of 21 for me and uh, excited to, uh, to be with you today to talk about a lot of the projects uh, we launched last year and what's coming uh, for the new year. How's the, how's the life as a, as a new, uh, new father for you? Is everything going okay? Are you able to sleep it's a little going bit? Okay. I, I, I keep saying it's a, it's a lot of love and very little sleep. Okay. So you trade, uh, you trade here, but uh, it's, it's a good trade. Fantastic. I, I can imagine a lot of nappies, I suppose. Uh, trying. Um, so, so Matt, one of the, the things that we do on this podcast is we like to give people uh, an idea of uh, the origin story of the pioneer, of the innovator, of the person who, who is in this journey. So it'd be really great to hear firsthand from you, I guess, how you got your start. And you can go back as early as possible as you want or, you know, as, as, as relevant as you want. Okay, let's do that. Uh, well, my, my origin story goes back pretty far, I would say uh, about 20 years ago, actually. And uh, so I was a, a young student just arriving in college, full of dreams and excitement. And uh, at the time I was living in the French Alps. Uh, the French Alps have a lot of space, a lot of mountains. And beautiful. so that's great, beautiful mountains. And so great grounds if you wanted to organize parties. And at the time there was a really big wave coming from UK uh, that really took over Europe, uh, which was really that uh, techno music. It's not the first wave of techno in Europe, but that was like one wave of uh, underground rave parties being organized all around, all across Europe. And so I was at the right place at the right time, kind of started really seeing that scene, joining that scene, trying to become a creator and organizer. Uh, and I became a video jockey. And so, uh, because I was in the Alps at the time where rave uh, started appearing everywhere, that's how I get my first try at uh, trying to transform my environment with uh, interaction and visuals. That's pretty much what I was doing at a video jockey, taking over a scene, taking over a building, taking over an unexpected location, and using it as a as a canvas for for stories and creativity. And so, yeah, that's really the the starting point. 
from there, I taught myself design, interactive video. I changed my interest as a student and I decided that I wanted to dedicate myself to uh, digital creativity. And fast forward 20 years later, here we are. I am still somehow trying to transform my environment and using the physical world as a canvas. Uh, this time, not for techno music, this time for, for Google and Google's partners. And, 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 and this is this is fascinating. I mean, we it's, it's funny because we also have some common backgrounds because you were doing a, a VJ. I've been doing DJing for in my past. So there, there are some crossovers I can see in, a, in our common passions. But what I wanted to understand also is uh, uh, how the evolution of your interest for visual arts and interactive digital arts then, uh, you know, came into fruition when you were looking for your career path, how, how this evolution started and, and, and how you found yourself in working in augmented and virtual reality. Yeah, it was not a, a straight line. I mean, it's never a straight line, right? But I can connect the dots today. But uh, I, from, from that techno scene, uh, I, I was doing a lot of creative work as a, as a hobby, if I may say, you know, I was like designing, organizing exhibitions, creating video arts, making videos. And I started studying more about uh, media entertainment and the internet. Uh, it was still the early days. And so my, my first few jobs were all related to that, to music and digital, uh, music download and digital. I actually, ended up working on some of the very first generations of music download experiences pre-iPhone in 2017, uh, oh, wow. 27, sorry. Uh, that's from where how I actually ended up joining Google uh, as an expert in media entertainment, but more focused on the business side, on the advertising side, on like ad strategy. And while there at Google in that initial roles, I realized I was missing the creative parts of the work I wanted to do proper creation, proper making, not just strategy. And I pretty much worked my way from the business side uh, to a more creative technology over many, many years. Uh, now, the, the reason why I actually ended up working with augmented reality, VR and immersive, it's, it's funny, a lot of that comes from one of my mentors who asked me one day uh, to explore augmented reality he had a he had a dream he wanted to be able to recreate famous movie scenes in your own environments oh that's he, really cool he even had made like a video like a dummy video uh you know all fake to show what it could look like but he had no idea how to do this and so i think we're like back in 2013 i think 2013 20, maybe 14 I remember him asking me, say, Matt, I want you to go explore that thing, augmented reality, and, and tell me what we can do creatively with it. What's funny is that I had seen augmented reality before, back in 2008. I've seen some of the early expanses, and I thought it was really gimmicky. I was not interested. I was not impressed. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it's kind of a gimmick. You have to print a paper, and it's just too many steps. But he changed my mind by, by giving me that... Uh, that mission, I started really diving into, but wait, when can we actually use augmented reality with a purpose? When does it make sense? And since there, I've been, you know, exploring more and more, diving more and more, understanding, you know, what, what can be done from a storytelling standpoint, how we can engage with fans. Uh, and I'm a bit excited to see, of course, the progress of the technology because, uh, things are so much easier today to develop in AR than it used to be. Are you still in contact with this mentor? Do you want to mention this person's name? 
Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, his name was uh, Mike Yap. He was the he was the founder of the zoo that, that was like the the creative agency at Google for brands. That uh, he was a pretty uh, uh, unique character, a seventy years old Californian surfer who Whoa. was one of the first to have Photoshop in SF uh, in the eighties, and uh, a very inspiring uh, figure. Beautiful. And probably one of the oldest guy at Google also. <laughs> And he told you to start exploring augmented reality. True. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. It's crazy, and, right? Sorry, go on, Dan. Yeah, because I was going to ask us, I mean, back when you completed your master's degree in, in 2016 in, in digital media, uh, sorry, 2006 in digital media, yeah, yeah. like what was was augmented reality on the cards then? What, what Like how different was it studying, I guess, digital media back then compared to like where it is now? Well, I... My, my, my master, I had a master degree in digital media where it was really more like studying the economics of mm. digital media and digital media entertainment. It was not like a creative master. It was more like, how do you run digital media? How do you create organizations? But clearly, yeah, the augmented reality was not uh, under my radar at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, what was on, on my radar was much more uh, interactive video, uh, big screens, uh, inter interaction installations, you know, things like that. Uh, mm. But it was a pretty logical step, you know, obviously from, from, from having big screens or doing projection mapping to actually projecting visuals through a mobile phone camera, you know, the, the leap creatively was, was pretty easy. A lot of the thinking was the same. Using the world as a canvas, you know, that's the same story. So yeah. you've been doing also projection mapping with real 3D mapping of the images to the actual topology of the room where you were projecting, right? I've been doing low quality projection mapping in the early days uh, that didn't look that great, but was exciting. And, okay. Uh, and, and, okay. Clearly, and the thinking was clearly going toward that direction. Okay. Because I, 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 there are a lot of uh, companies that are operating in, in the area and uh, um, I think that is a, a very exciting way to let people experience augmented reality without the need of wearing any kind of device and any kind of glasses. Uh, do you think that mobile AR is here to stay from your point of view? I mean, you've been doing a lot of guidelines, I suppose, for the value of augmented reality for consumers. Do you think that the mobile version of our, us pulling out the devices is here to stay? Or do you envision that the future is near where glasses will be potentially more ubiquitous i i imagine probably us having both uh for a while meaning i right now i see a, a lot of value for me of mobile augmented realities to augment an existing situation so social AR, or to allow you to really uh right click your environments to be able to really point your camera at something in the physical space around you and get an engagement, you know, search for it or compare it or get the price, you know, visual search. Uh, those two use cases, I think, are going to remain relevant, in my opinion, as long as we share selfies or as long as we actually have mobile phones in our pockets. Uh, I could imagine in a future, we keep saying in 10 years, so I don't know if it's going to be in 10 years. It's been 10 years, I would say in 10 years, but uh, in 10 years, uh, when maybe we'll or have some kind of augmented reality glasses. Uh, I can imagine that the, the, mobile, the role of the mobile phones might diminish a little bit, 
but uh, I still think we have use cases where you you eventually point your phone at something and get information. That augmentation, or even precise and that, touch and precise interface that you can it, use with your it, finger. Exactly. Yeah. But so, I, I, I just finish on that. I actually believe that uh, the distinction between what's on your phone, what's on your glasses, what's on your wall, what's sound are going to disappear. That's more the vision I see where instead of thinking about uh, a form factor, we think much more in terms of the whole environment around me being augmented, being connected. And, and there's, a, there's a, a whole conversation about uh, the, the fact that the technology will really explode and will really become mainstream when the interface and uh, the, the, the actual silicon will become more and more transparent to the user. And mm -hmm. I, I, I truly believe that, for example, you know, the fact that right now all the devices are very bulky and they're heavy and you have the controllers mm -hmm. that you have to put in your hands are, you know, create a lot of friction for users to, you know, to, to adopt this kind of technology. What do you think? Uh, I think, I mean, here you're talking about, I guess, mostly VR and uh, I, yeah. You know, I'm I'm a fan of uh, the latest VR headset. I mean, I have those. I'm, I've been playing with those. It's pretty impressive what you can do compared to the first Oculus. Uh, the reality, though, is that uh, after having used them quite a lot at some point during the lockdown, you know, a year and a half ago, now they are in a drawer, and I, I don't use them as much as I should. And I, yeah. I have to putting something that isolates me from my environment is uh, is a barrier. Uh, it's not just that it's heavy, it's also that suddenly I'm totally removed from my environment and, you know, I just had a baby and I, I don't live alone. There's a bunch of barriers like that. I think putting a piece of screen on your face uh, is going to be a barrier for many people for a while. So I hope indeed that at some point it's going to be as easy as just wearing very light glasses. And whether you're like fully merged or just augmented, uh, the kind of efforts to set up, you know, the whole process would be easier. I think there's a little bit of a barrier now. We are in the age of exploration and experimentation, which is amazing. I have a hard time seeing, uh, you know, a lot of my non-technical friends, you know, uh, wearing a headset on a daily basis. Not yet. And you've been working quite a lot with platforms. You recently launched a very uh, interesting project mm -hmm. on Snapchat. Would you like mm -hmm. to talk about that project that you've been launching? Yes. Yeah, so uh, in that case, so using mobile AR and so no, no headsets, uh, just good old phone uh, using Snapchat. Also, uh, we we were privileged to work with a lot of very great partners. So we we partnered Google and Google Pixel uh, partnered with Snapchat, uh, Disney, and the studio Marvel, and with Verizon. Mm -hmm. so a lot of partners in the mix and. The goal was to promote the new Pixel 6 uh, device mm -hmm. uh, in partnership with Verizon 5G networks. And so uh, all that big family pretty much came together to, to bring to life an exciting AR expanses that could really showcase the capabilities of the phone, the Pixel 6, but also the capabilities of 5G networks. And so what we, we decided was, well, if we can work with uh, the Avengers and superheroes, what if we could actually unlock uh, one of the oldest universal dream, which is pretty much having superpowers. 
when we see superheroes, we all get excited because of their powers. That's what makes them unique. That's what makes them stand out. And so with AR, as we can detach ourselves from reality and gravity, what if we could give those powers to the users? And so that's what we did. We, we launched five different filters. Uh, each filter was a character. So like, for example, Dr. Strange uh, or Thor or Captain Marvel. And in each filter, you had multiple effects. Uh, and what's interesting is that those effects were all powered by the very last, the very latest uh, Snapchat API. Nice. So a lot of machine learning, a lot of, uh, we use object recognition. You can, for example, uh, change the size of food. Uh, if you find a pizza, you know, in one of the filters, you can change the size of the pizza for real. A lot of hand tracking, body tracking, you can change your environment. We, we had a lot of fun playing with the whole two kids. So I, I guess, you know, a lot of that sounds really fun and, and actually exciting to put together. But I, my guess is, is that working with IP like that can be pretty difficult sometimes to navigate. I mean, what kind of challenges did you face when you have to bring, you know, IP like that into the world of augmented reality? Well, you, you have to be extremely re respectful when you work with uh, uh, that kind of IP. And uh, that was my... I've been working with big brands uh, that have like very strong IPs several times in my career. So I was aware of that. I remember we worked with Louis Vuitton, for example, they have very high expectations for their guidelines. Uh, and the, the year before we had done a project with Lucasfilm on Star Wars. So it was a good training ground on the whole idea of like a, a canon and how you follow the canon from a, a franchise, but still find a space for creating something new. Uh, on the Marvel projects, we work with a great agency called Trigger, uh, based on the West Coast, and they did a fantastic job of research. On, on, uh, with Trigger, we did a lot of research on every single character. So every single character, we obviously watched the movies many times, and we broke down every single superpowers they had, and we broke down all the, the canon. And that's how we were able to work efficiently. Uh, and that's how we were able to uh, pretty much come with relevant superpowers that we brought to Marvel and that Marvel loved because it was really true to the story. So that's a bit of the learning is if you want to work with those big franchises, you need to be very rigorous and disciplined. Mm -hmm. uh, but you pretty much need to do your research and do your homework and that's how you get it approved. Yeah, no, I think because it's also interesting. So I, when I've spoken to some brands, I guess, around when they want to explore AR as well, has there, has there ever been uh, any conversation or concerns around, I guess, giving the user the freedom to, to place that IP wherever they want in the real world? I mean, because obviously they could be anywhere. And and there's I've spoken to some brands in the past where they've, they've brought up the fact that, oh, well, actually, us sticking our brand or our IP or logo on this other person's building or this other person's kind of environment poses some some challenges for us. I, I don't know if you've had that before or how you uh, navigate that. I, I guess that what Daniel is trying to uh, understand is the, the way that you're managing brand safety uh, when you're launching this kind of campaigns. It's a great question. We, we always have that question uh, because indeed, uh, again, Disney, or other big media entertainment companies, they care a lot about their IP. They care a lot about their characters. They don't want them to be associated with anything weird, uh, offensive. And so uh, we usually the way we address that is by telling them that fans today, if they want to take your IP and mix it with something weird, they'll do it anyway. 
So you have to accept, you know, that even if you try to control your IP, it's going to be somehow mixed with the world or used as a meme. But you can be smart about it. And what we try to do is to make sure, though, that within our tool, we don't necessarily uh, enable unexpected or uh, inappropriate behaviors. Uh, we also, because we are on social media platforms, like a Snapchat, one first line of defense we have is uh, Snapchat's own terms uh, and conditions. If you don't respect Snapchat policy and push something considered offensive by Snapchat, the content will be taken down anyway. So we don't have to regulate. We can rely on those platforms on regulation. But we get that question a lot. And again, we it's it's a process to let them know that you have to let go some of the control. You have no choice, but you can be smart about it. And you can give the right tool so that at least the content is high quality. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of, lot of sense. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's this idea that you're working when you have a AR technology and you're, you're, you're giving it in the hands of the users, you're working with the user, right? You're not just presenting the user with a video or something like that. This is something that they can actually touch. They can actually change. They can you know, work with. Those are creators experience. The, you create setup for fans to create their own experience with it, their own content with it, which makes it more viral. That's what's exciting, but you have to keep that mindset in mind. You're not creating a perfect experience. It's going to be seen as isolation. You're creating more like a stage that the fans are going to bring to their own space and play with. Yeah. I, I, I have a question related to the, the platforms, though. Um, and thank you for this answer. This is super interesting. My next question is related to the kind of strategy that you think that brand should adopt. Because right now we are th talking more and more about web-enabled AR. There are platforms mm -hmm. like 8Wall or even Bleepar and Zappar and so on that are moving mm -hmm. towards that direction that obviously mm -hmm. is way more integrating in the way that uh, Google is doing their campaigns in a classic way. You know, you have a banner, you have Google Ads, mm -hmm. and you click on that, and then eventually the augmented reality experience opens up directly from your browser. And obviously 5G networks will enable this even more because the, the kind of compression and the kind of uh, speed of the lines in the network will enable mm -hmm. even more complex scenes to be, to, to, to be visualized. Now, my question is, from a strategy perspective, does, does it make more sense to allow um, brands to access those web tools and then allow the user to select the kind of social media platform to share the content that they create using those filters? Or you believe that it's better to control the experience on a platform level like Snapchat on, or, or other platforms that are already out there? I think your question touches on the, the number one trend we've been dealing with AR for all those years, which is really distribution. Yeah. And how do you make, you know, access to the experience as easy as possible for the fans? How do you bring that content where there are many fans? Well, on the other side, trying to get the best possible uh, technology available for the expanse. And uh, it's been, yeah, an endless discussion and exploration on my side for years. And uh, for, for many years, we were pretty much stuck in, in apps, as you know. We could do pretty cool stuff with game engines, but then promoting an app is so difficult. Getting people to download an app is difficult, if it's a one-off especially. Uh, on the other side, we look at web, you know, WebXR and WebAR. I'm a big fan of open formats. Yeah. I always like that idea. What Same. if it was just one, you were just one click away, one URL away from, uh, from an AR experience? There are 
very impressive uh, progress made by some startups uh, those days that provide their, their, their toolkits. And uh, we see them being used a lot, especially for one-up uh, campaigns. For me, I, I don't think there's like the right distribution channels versus the wrong. That really depends always on your goals. If your goal is to optimize for the best visual quality, you obviously should develop an app because you're always going to have a better kind of access to the hardware and the visuals. If the goal is to distribute, is to optimize for reach, uh, in some cases, WebXR is uh, is a good use case. In many, uh, is a good approach. But in many use cases, social networks are a good one because they have existed audiences. So I'm, I'm right. kind of like yeah. very, I'm open to all of them. The challenge I've seen with WebXR uh, is uh, sometimes it's just the, the fluidity of the expanse and the quality of the 3D content might be slightly lower that way you can do with an app. Uh, and the toolkit also might be a bit more limited than what you can do with a social platform. Uh, I give you an example working with Snap. We're, we're able to tap into Snap's machine learning toolkit, which is of course. really impressive. It's incredible what we've been doing there. You have a lot of options. And it works straight out of the box. I would have never been able to do that if I was using a, a browser. Now, looking forward, though, I, for me, the, the next really big channel that is going to solve a lot of problems, I think, is really uh, cloud streaming, uh, 3D pixel streaming, and uh, that ability to run 3D content uh, in the cloud and then stream that content on your device, whether it's 3D or AR 3D, for me, that's going to be the game changer. We start mm -hmm. to see some of those services appearing in gaming, yep. you know, and Google has Google Stadia. I'm now playing uh, games on Google Stadia on my laptop and it works really well. So we're getting there. So I think that's going to probably bring the best of both worlds, the ability to have extremely high quality content running in game engines. But in the meantime, having an expanse that hopefully you'll be able to unlock just with a URL. So, for I me, mean, that's where we're going. And once, you know, it will take time, same way that it took time for video streaming 10 years ago to really come. But at some point, it's going to almost redefine the whole discussion around what it should be WebXR, what should be an app. Well, it won't matter anymore. We're going to have a hybrid solution. Awesome. Super interesting. Thank you so much for the answer. Uh, I, I'm wondering, like, so. So obviously, this is that's that's kind of touching on the future there. But in in the now and and the here, I mean. When you do speak to brands around these kind of campaigns, mm. what 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 kind of metrics are they actually hoping for? I mean, what kind of levels of engagement do they want for, to make this a, a reasonable, you know, expense on their marketing campaign? I mean, I I, I can't give you like a specific no, number. No, don't worry but, about specific. But, but obviously, uh, obviously, they look at how many uh, absolute users will have engaged with the content. Uh, and they care a lot also about uh, virality, you know, and are people engaging with it? How long are they engaging? Are they creating content with it? And are they sharing their content? Because AR is mostly a, it's a camera experience by definition, it is a creator experience. So uh, the vast majority of the AR projects we do, we don't do just AR, we do also 3D work, right? But when it's AR, when it's in the camera, we really have a high incentive those days to try to drive for content creation. And so the percentage of users who open the experience and then create content and share it is a key metric that people care about. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, are you, are you seeing brands willing to, I guess, 
be a bit more creative and be a bit more, I guess, risky in terms of trying out things that haven't been done before. And, and I guess not just for the sake of being a gimmick, but for the sake of, you know, pushing the boundaries a bit, but also doing something that can receive those levels of engagement that they want. Uh, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, I like to think in terms of immersive content. So it's AR plus 3D plus VR. And so you know, that's really the whole space we discuss when we talk to, to partners. And uh, those days I talk more to content partners than brands per se. So a lot of the people I work with will be even movie studios, streaming platforms, or sports leagues. Uh, and clearly, you know, uh, what's interesting is that a lot of them now, they have like a few years of experience working with those technologies. You know, uh, when we work with Disney, when we work with the NBA, who is a, a partner of Google right now, you know, they, they, they've done many things in the space. It's not the first rodeo. And so they come with uh, learnings, sometimes great learnings, sometimes learnings where I might, I might disagree, you know, it depends on their own experience, but at least every, people come much more with a point of view. So on one side, I feel in the industry, there's a certain maturity and understanding of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense at all. What's interesting though, is that in the meantime, there's a sudden huge influx of interest and passion for the metaverse that is creating in the meantime that opposite effect, uh, right? How many minutes before talking about it? Uh, but what's, what the metaverse is doing is that it's creating a, a, a huge interest suddenly for the space of immersive, which is good, but also somehow I'm seeing a slight uh, reduction in critical, critical thinking and uh, acceptance of what is good as one is not because everybody's trying to kind of like rush for it. So we're in the interesting situation now where if you work with brands in their creative teams and their technical teams, you get to talk to people much smarter, much wiser about AR than many years ago because they've been doing the work, they've been trying things. And in the meantime, on the surface level, although you hear a lot of noise about low relevance, very gimmicky immersive use cases. So we have a bit of both those days. A lot of noise, but if you kind of like can cut through it, very interesting uh, explorations from partners, from brands, because they've been doing it for years and they got smarter at it. Can I ask you a question about the metaverse now? Because, I mean, we mentioned the magic word, and I think that we are going down the rabbit hole at the moment. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so uh, there is a lot of interest about the metaverse, and uh, mm -hmm. the world is very often misused to talk about game worlds that are completely closed, that have their own ecosystem, maybe not even based on blockchain. And they don't have any kind of connection with augmented reality in the real world. Do you think that this kind of misunderstanding of the technology is going to be a problem for the technology to actually to explode? Or do you think that the fact that people are just talking about it is opening the doors that before were very much closed for brands and company to adopt this kind of immersive technologies? It's a good question. I, I don't know what I think about it right now. I'm, I'm... On one side, I, I see the, the benefit of using compelling labels to, to drive adoption or to kind of drive stories around the technology. Yeah. And you could argue that the metaverse is a convenient shortcut into where there's a lot of things coming and the immersive is going to be great. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, where I, I see potential challenges, first, the, I don't know 
hardware you were when you read Snow Crash. I, I read, you know, all those cyberpunk books fairly young and I grew up with it and I was excited by Snow Crash, but whether it's that one or Ready Player One, for me, the metaverse is a dystopian idea. It's an escapist idea. You exactly. Know, Ready, Ready Player One talks about a world where life is so horrible in Columbus, Ohio, that the character would rather live in a virtual world, you know, in, a, in, a, in, in an artificial world because True. reality sucks. Same with Snow Crash. And even if I get people say, yeah, but it's a term that is broad and it's not just about that. Words have a meaning and they create expectations. And the one thing where I'm like slightly challenged right now is like, do we truly believe that escaping and living in the digital world is desirable? Do we believe that's a desirable future? Is it what we want? I get it that we could do it. Sure, we could live yeah. in a 3D world and I could look like a unicorn and because it's pixels and not atoms, I have a lot of visual freedom what I could do. But is it what I want? Is it that what I want for my kids and for... And so I think beside the term metaverse, the one... It's, it's good in a way that a lot of people care about immersive suddenly. It's bringing funding, it's bringing passion, it's bringing interest. On the other side, I feel like I hope we can drive the discussion toward the, the why and why should we do it? Why is it a good thing? And we all believe that technology is going to play more and more a big role in our lives. But this time, can it get it right? And can we proactively think about what's good and what's not for humanity and can we also try to proactively anticipate what other terrible things people might do with it and how do we build to prevent them from happening i'm a bit concerned by the lack of critical thinking now and it's more like oh my god that's the future let's do it and i i don't want to have a uh oh moment in 10 years from now from one side i'm I mean, uh, big ups for what you just said. This is exactly in line with what I think. And it's important that as we talk about the metaverse and just to reiterate the concept, the metaverse is a vision, is not a thing. It doesn't exist right now. It's something that is going to be built probably in 10 years from now. From now. And everything that is shown as the metaverse is a, a, a proto-vision of what the actual potential global vision of the metaverse would eventually be in 10 years from now and nobody's gonna nobody knows if this is gonna be exactly like like we envision it because mm -hmm. if we when we were envisioning a world with everybody with a mobile phone wasn't exactly like the one that we have right now with snapchat tinder and uber it was a completely different vision so i mean it ended up being completely different from what we envision it and everything that we are using right now in terms of artifacts that are connected to the metaverse like nfts are um, uh, actual primitives of this digital vision. So, I mean, like the, the website of 1994 uh, that were basically glorified brochures, these NFTs and, and the virtual world that we're using right now is gonna, are gonna be the primitives of what is gonna be this metaverse in the future. Now, the, my other question for you is, and we are going on a little bit uh, uncharted territory here. And well, this is well, just before just before you go into that question, because I thought it, I thought it was really interesting. Because Matthew, you're, you're talking about this importance of the metaverse being, I guess, more than 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 what people are just perceiving it to be right now. But that's why you also created a, you know, I guess, well, you're part of the your satire, I guess, a collective of uh, fake artists, right? Uh yeah, I think you you're talking about a. Uh... 
a personal projects I did with uh, with uh, with my collective fake artist. We, I mean, we we launched a project called Pyramid NFT, which was uh, a satire of technology, and it was uh, the first NFT platform allowing you to live forever, uh, unlocking immortality. And so it was a satire of technology and how technology uh, turns often into a cult-like type of things, but also how America has that long history of gold rush and uh, optimistic narratives around uh, new business opportunities. And what's interesting is that as much as I think there are a lot of interesting things going on in NFT, you could also feel a bit of that American tradition of the gold rush and American tradition of, you know, grand, grand vision uh, happening there. So the, that projects that is again, a personal projects was for us a way to kind of tap on the way technology is being, uh, you know, using narrative in American society and, uh, and try to have a bit of critical thinking about it back to the middle of us. I, I think it's great that there's interest for immersive. This needs to come with critical thinking and not just uh, blind optimism. And I, we need both. And so I'm trying to bring a bit of the critical thinking with my personal creative work. And you recently launched this project that's uh, how it's going. Can you tell us a little bit if uh, the project is uh, getting visibility? Yeah I, mean, yeah, I mean, it was launched in September. We, uh, what's funny is that we, we got banned from a lot of platforms because wow. Sometimes platform would not understand that it's a satire. It looks like a plain pyramid scheme oh because God. we designed it that way. It, you know, we designed the whole experience to look horrible. You had to bid with clicks. Uh, the only way you can bid uh, for your NFT and uh, pyramid NFTs is by clicking. And so the more clicks, uh, the higher you bid. And the winner of uh, of the uh, of the bid is going to be turned into uh, a proper NFT. We're gonna finish scan them and we're gonna then meet that. So. We're still actually getting more bids, but uh, we uh, we were uh, excited to be a number one result on uh, there's a Reddit uh, there's a Reddit board called Informa uh, Internet is Beautiful that is one of the biggest uh, Reddit uh, channels out there. Like, uh, and we were number one whole day, so we went viral. And then at the end of the day, we got excluded from it. Oh, no. We haven't done anything because some of them moderators somehow thought we were a real pyramid scheme. And the same happened with MailChimp. We tried to send uh, an email of uh, the projects to all our uh, friends with MailChimp and MailChimp uh, suspended our account. They thought it was a <laughs> proper grift. A proper they thought scam. it was phishing and scam. Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, I mean, we, we had designed it to make it that way, to make it look like a little shady but it was not we're not scamming anyone okay now i would like to go back there to you the go yeah nick to, to the metaverse jump into conversation. your deep 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 because i was gonna say this is nick's provocative <laughs> corner now so you gotta you gotta prepare for that so my provocation is do you think the metaverse should be a platform for free speech or do you think that some topics should be banned and moderated as finally some modern social media platforms are doing to avoid hate speech and neo-nazi behaviors and you know all that kind of horrible stuff that we've been seeing in the last five ten years i mean it's it's a tough question but uh first i i much more believe in ambient computing than the metaverse 
for me, the metaverse is like the, the forest hiding the, 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 the tree hiding the forest. And when everybody now is looking at the metaverse, which is that broad terms talking about all those immersive computing expenses together, I'm thinking, well, no, the, the real future for me, I believe, and the one I desire is, I'm not sure how we're going to call it, but that's ambient computing. It's a world where it doesn't matter anymore if you're interacting with information on a screen, on your glasses, on your kitchen stove, on your fridge, or with your voice. It's a world where somehow physical and digital environments are increasingly merging and that gives you much more power to interact with your uh, physical environment. So first, I want to put that out there. That's what I think is the future. And the okay. metaverse is a part of it. But I actually think ambient computing is bigger. Now to your question. I feel like your, your, your question touches on what I discussed before. Uh, we can't just build tools. We can't just build technology, drop it out there, and say, that's it. I did my job. Society, go play with it. I think we, we saw it with social networks. I believe we have a role to proactively, the way we build products, the way we design them, the way we gamify them, the way we pick metrics. Yeah. That's, I think, an important part, the way we pick metrics to optimize against as product teams. All of that is going to be critical in uh, shaping the positive and negative impacts of those platforms. And so there's a responsibility, in my opinion, a proactive responsibility to think about what could go wrong and what are the tools that can be built, hopefully proactively and iterated against to prevent any kind of behavior that hurts society. So then I think there's a bigger question, which is, of course, you shouldn't do anything that is illegal. But there is beyond illegal, there's a moral, there's ethics. There are things that might be legal, but that might not be ethical. So how do you prevent those things from happening? Even they are purely legal. I mean, that's a question for a lawyer. There's a lot at stake when you are in those big platforms of like what you should, could uh, do. But uh, at, the physical, at a philosophical level, at least I can answer you, I believe we should be proactively trying to prevent any kind of harmful behavior and we can't wait for it to happen. We need to practically think about what could go wrong. And I have a, 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 a follow-up to this question. Thank you so, so for your answer. Um, don't you think though, that as an artist and knowing that artists throughout the centuries and even right now with artists like Banksy, uh, mm -hmm. they've been pushing their own message about social equality and change mm -hmm. for the better and, and you know, uh, inclusion, uh, just pushing the boundaries of what is legal and what is not. Don't you think that's not allowing the, that kind of expression in those platform will cut off the voice of those artists in the future? I mean, I'm, first, I'm, I'm not saying this should be cut. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm, what I'm telling you is that if, if you look from the perspective of a platform, you obviously have to follow the law. Like, what, like what happened with you? Like what happened and with you? I mean, what happened with your project is kind of an example of what I was talking about, right? So the rules well, of those that case, forums... it's, it's funny in that case, it's more the, I think the topic's more is, is like, it's more debate on like the automation of moderation. And, you know, if you want to moderate content, I think moder content moderation 
is necessary in many cases. Everywhere, well, of course. Because you do something that is hurting society or is hurting users, you know, you need to have tools to moderate the content. Like when you have to do that at scale, you need to uh, find ways to automate uh, that moderation with millions of users. And that's a very hard problem. It's, you know, it's one of the main use cases of machine learning, obviously. And uh, unfortunately, when you try to do that at scale or one for all, you end up building tools uh, that are imperfect, uh, that, are, that are as perfect as possible. And so in my case, you know, I, with Pyramid, it's a, set, it's a satire. Uh, there's all the subtleties. If you just look at keywords, you might think it's, you know, it was like a, a fake pyramid scheme. Of course, mm -hmm. it was not a piece of art. But uh, I can't blame platforms for not being able to see through this. I understand the why. I think that's part of just the, the structure. Uh, but I don't think, again, that we should, you know, proactively uh, censor those things. We should just need to accept the reality that some, sometimes they're totally imperfect and they don't realize it's art. But there are a lot of our, you know, I was not censored. It's just one tool that allow us to send an email. I had alternatives. I had other options. I think that's also, you know, critical. You need to have options. So when we talk about options, I guess, there's this mm -hmm. interesting conversation when it comes to, you know, these platforms and when deciding what platforms you want to use and stuff of these, like, I guess, walled gardens that's mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, uh, that exist at, at the moment. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm interested to get your opinion on, you know, the, the, the platforms that are out there in terms of, you know, th that, that high level concept that they are, uh, that they need that for a true metaverse to exist, we need to be able to allow cross compatibility between platforms and between, you know, environments like this, I guess, how do you perceive that at the moment? And what would you, would you like to see? I, uh, I, I heard that idea that of like the metaverse being, you know, that accumulation of all the different 3d environments and different scenes and for, for the metaverse to be a true metaverse, it needs to be all interoperable. And I think uh, the vision is great. Uh, I like that it goes back to also, you know, the vision of the internet as like a fully interoperable and compatible platform. So for me, that's good. I think the more you can have, you can give people freedom to innovate and not being stuck into one or another world garden, the better, which is again, why, you know, the browser is such an amazing technology. So I, I think that's positive. On the other side, I, uh, they're like very strong challenges i don't even understand all of them when it comes to engineering to create compatibility uh, between different 3d experiences you know and compatibility between different game engines so there are probably a lot of hard problems that need to be solved and sometimes when i hear about uh, people talking about nft and the metaverse they might slightly underestimate those challenges it will take a while uh, i'm very excited though to see some startups like already play, player one and what they were doing with avatars this idea of building, you know, like an avatar that can be used in multiple platforms uh, as your own personality, I think it's a great idea. It's funny because it goes back a bit to like API thinking. API, you know, an amazing inventions because they allowed for that some compatibility uh, or in terms of infrastructure and services, you know, and be able to have use one login, be able to retrieve content from one API to another. There was actually a bit of a golden age of APIs a few years ago. I don't know if you guys remember all, you know, when, when the social graph came out, 
for a few years, we had a lot of very interesting uh, kind of customized experiences using the social graph uh, to create personal experiences. You know, I remember the, the Museum of Me by Intel, for example, a few years ago. So I, I hope we're going to see more of that with the metaverse also, like kind of API thinking where you can tap into different platforms to pull assets, to pull data, to create something very custom. Openness is good. It's always good. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, so, I mean, if, if there is this idea of, of a, I mean, I'm, I feel like I've said the word metaverse too many times in this podcast already, but mm -hmm. this idea of a metaverse, um, is this idea of it being ubiquitous and, and being all around us and, and, and ingrained in our daily lives. How do you, you coming from a, uh, I guess your marketing background and, and that brand perspective, how do you strike that balance, I guess, between integrating marketing campaigns into a into a metaverse environment but also mm -hmm. you know not infringing on on a user or, or on you know a consumer in terms of in those environments as well it's a great question uh i'd say i'm i'm, I'm lucky that those days i i do much less advertising or marketing and much more like content expenses so uh there's a shift in how i'm approaching things because i'm building experiences with content people are actively looking for you know, like people want to consume Disney content, they want to consume NBA content. So uh, it's much less of an interruption. The thing with marketing is marketing is uh, very often can be an advertising can be an interruption. And so you need to be very respectful of the users if you're going to interact them, interrupt them to tell them something. Uh, the vast majority of people who are working in that space, uh, in the immersive space, have seen uh, the movie Hyper Reality. Oh, yeah. Uh, by Keishi Matsuda. Keishi Matsuda, yeah. Such an amazing movie. What I'm actually, it's crazy those days I'm seeing. It was, it, it, this movie is a total critique of what the metaverse could become. It is dystopian on purpose. It is very well made and it shows really what could go wrong. What I think is amazing is I start seeing recently both uh, uh, in China and I think also in Italy, a few movies being circulated that are total ripoff of Keishi Matsuda's film and vision yeah. of the world with like AR everywhere, except that in this case, those ripoffs are telling that as a good thing. It's like, whoa, look how awesome the future is going to be. Everything's going to blink and there will be billboards everywhere and you're gonna have marketing overlaid on every single aspect of life. So obviously uh, we have a pretty well-defined understanding of what the nightmare could be if we are not proactively trying to address the risk of marketing and advertising in the metaverse, the nightmare would be uh, way too much stimulation, uh, way too much brand everywhere, uh, and no one wants it. So to, to answer your question, I think that if we bring advertising into a physical space, whether it's a physical or virtual physical space, we need to be even more careful uh of how we're going to interrupt people and what is going to be the right amount because not only it's not ethical but also i think users are just gonna start disconnecting and stop seeing the ads there are too many ads your brain can only process that much information we are already at saturation in our modern lives so if you just push more messages and more messages i think people just will stop seeing it will stop noticing you will stop caring so it's actually no one's interest to overwhelm people with messages. And so I feel the, the future is a place where we're able to serve the right messages at the right user. Meaning a message I actually care about because it's really something 
they wanted or they needed. So do you envision the, the future of this kind of technology? And I'm talking about AR immersive, but anything that can be experienced as an, uh, you know, first person. Uh, the, the, the beginning of creators and creative to become more conscious about topics like neuroscience of behavioral science or even philosophy. Uh, one of the things that I was discussing with my uh, global lead at Accenture with Dan Gunter is the fact that uh, I, I think that probably in the future, we may need to stop hiring technologists and, and, and creatives and start hiring more philosophers or anthropologists or sociologists, because as the technology will become more and more similar to what is the real life and the, the way that we interact mm -hmm. with between people and more and more intimate to that layer of uh, perception that is our own body, I mean, we not only we have to be respectful of the user, but also we have to be conscious of the mechanics of interact interaction with other people, but mm -hmm. also the kind of purpose of action that those people will have in the metaverse. Mm -hmm. Why do I go to a specific place? What gives me meaning about having this experience? Mm -hmm. uh, why this kind of uh, um, experience or this kind of digital art or this kind of uh, branded experience is meaningful for me and can really change my life for the better not just you know because of information that is, is 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 shoveled into my brain because you know it's paid by by a brand you agree with that i i don't think we need to stop hiring technologists but i i agree that we need to hire more no never stop uh, Matt doesn't want to be out of a job more. nick <laughs> what are you saying no don't do that no I, no no, I, no I wasn't saying stop hiring i would say we should we, i mean we have technologists and right uh, uh, sorry we, sorry we about that yeah we, don't, was, we, uh, recording. We, we, we can play a we can have a replay but uh no i i i, I think at all time uh we should have hired people in general whether they're engineers or designers or product managers yeah who have a strong sensitivity for human behavior and human psychology yeah you know, i i i think it's becoming more and more important because of the role technology is playing in our lives and yeah. now that digital technology is leaving the screens to take over our space to be everywhere it's becoming even more important but I would argue that from, from day one, I think that's it's been a miss from a lot of companies is I, we, you don't want to hire people who are not just amazing design talent or just amazing technical talent. You should be indeed a requirement to have a certain sensitivity for, for human behavior. I agree also that we should probably have more, you know, whether it's probably a UX function or it's like a, a creative strategy function, but yep. on people who are, we have the soul of the, the brain of an anthropologist. I agree with you, or a sociologist. Uh, and I think not just in terms of user flow, but also think in terms of user uh, emotional journey uh, and impact on society and impact on community. Detaching too much the technology and the product experience from society is, in my opinion, one of the reasons why we ended up with some of our tech harming people is because okay. No, I, no one meant, oh, we're going to build something that harms society. I, I think it's very rare. I think it's more sometimes people getting excited about their user journey or their future and failing to look at the bigger picture. And so we need that. We need to keep looking at the bigger picture of 
Why should we build this? Is it good for society? What can we do proactively to avoid potential harm? I agree with that. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good point. Dan. Okay. Well, look, I think just to, to wrap things up, I mean, we talked a lot about the future, but I'm just, just interested to understand from you uh, two, two things. Um, because we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast or, or watch it um, that uh, are building their own applications, are starting their own companies, are interacting with uh, different people in the space. Just interested to know from from your perspective, your background, and, and obviously you manage a team of, of different people and, and stuff in, in, the, in this space, is I guess what advice you would want to give to them, uh, I guess if you, you, know, you were in their position. Uh... I think the, the technical advice is uh, if you can learn 3D, I almost feel like I came to, I mean, I'm, I'm learning 3D a little bit, but I, I, I was more from a 2D initial generation and I wish I had started learning 3D and tools 15 years ago, not now. It's, the longer you wait, the harder it gets. Uh, that's for, for immersive. But uh, I mean, back to what we discussed before, I think with Nick, like whenever you're thinking about a campaign, a product, an experience, always bring it back to the human experience and the humans and what are they going to feel. Uh, as a creative, connect to the human experiences for the story, but go back to that uh, whenever you can. What am I doing for humans? Is it good for them? What, am I, what kind of emotion I'm going to create? Am I being respectful of their emotions? Those are like, I think, in, in important uh, principles. Uh, at a more strategic uh, and high level, maybe also keeping a healthy dose of skepticism with technology is important. Uh, again, the question why. We're, we've seen many hype cycles of technology for the last 15 years. There was the WebGL microsites, and then we had, <clears throat> everybody wanted to do apps, and then it was like VR for a while, and then we had voice, and they are now the metaverse. <clears throat> They come and go, and each time they come, they leave something, I think, interesting that we build on top of. They don't disappear. But obviously, because it's hype cycle, there's also always like the, the slope of disappointment behind where people lose a bit of interest. So what I'm probably trying to see people tell people here is like, think about the long game. Try to take the most and the best from each wave and each technology. Think about how you can use it in a meaningful way and, uh, and not creating gimmick. And also keep believing in yourself. Don't be too disappointed if one tech uh, that looks very promising suddenly is slightly less promising because it might come back. Uh, but keeping that critical uh, sense, I think, is very healthy, though. Like, always wonder yourself, am I improving the user experience here? Am I doing something good? Or am I just in love with my own idea because it looks shiny and it moves everywhere? I think that's uh, some, some sound advice there. Um, and then I guess just like lastly, I don't know if Nick, if you have anything else you want to ask, but I was just, just wondering about, about the future then what, like, there's lots of these different things that we've talked about, lots of these things that we're looking at. If you just had to pick just one thing, I mean, what, what are you most looking forward to the future of, of this industry? Of this industry? Uh, I look forward, hopefully to see a lot of relevant and expected use cases in a year from now that will come to life thanks to all the interest and passion and funding coming to the industry. 
there are a lot of people right now all over who are wondering, what do we do with the metaverse? What do we do with this? Uh, a lot of it relate to short-term gimmicks, but some of it relate to the unexpected genius ideas that we just don't know about yet. And I can't wait to see those. I, uh, I can't wait to have that haha moment where I, I see something coming from an unexpected place and I'm just blown away. Mm. So uh, that's for me the, the positive aspect now is that if you go to a creative technology schools around the world or developer schools or creative schools, a lot of young creators are thinking, what can I do with the metaverse? This thing sounds to be like the future. Maybe I should investigate. And all of it, I hope, will come some work that would have never existed otherwise and that will again surprise us so i want to see it yeah a lot, a lot to look forward to then in this space matthew thank you so much for being with us this has been very interesting and uh, enlightening in some way uh, thank you so much for finding the time thanks so much guys for for having me thanks for for the conversation we we should have counted how many times we say metaverse. Uh, I think <laughs> it's, it's a given now, I guess, in the industry. But uh, I, I appreciate you. You gave me a chance to, to share. No, wait, you know, we, we didn't really say the word NFT in this episode, did we? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we haven't covered that. I, I Probably we, we should spend, I think that probably we have like five minutes we can talk that could, about. That it. could be an entire episode by itself. I know, I, think, you know, I know. But a lot of the stuff that Matt is doing was, you know, with the Pat Pyramid was, I guess, an, an NFT in itself. Yeah, no, that was an NFT project. Uh, I think it's probably for, for, an, for another podcast. <laughs> Let's say let's say that the, the, the web free and metaverse are part of the same uh, big bag of, uh, of interest, passion, but also <laughs> buzz those days. And so uh, I don't think anything metaverse has to be NFT, but uh, and I don't think anything NFT has to be metaverse. But those are interesting topics. And, and do you agree with the fact that uh, NFTs are finally creating a profitable market for artists that have been neglected for so many years by the digital economy? I, I don't know if I would agree with that. Uh, I I do think I do think some creators are doing very well in the current creator economy, uh, but that others are struggling. It's very hard to be an artist and stand out online. Uh, there's a little bit of a winner take all structure uh, for creators those days. If you're not on top of the creator pyramids, you're struggling. So I, I do believe there's a need to explore new options and new avenues for uh, for everybody to make a living uh, out of creativity, creativity and art if you want. So in that way, I think, you know, all the experimentations happening around NFTs are positive. Is it going to lead to like a long-term sustainable industry? I don't know. I'm not sure, uh, but uh, you know, but I'm all about encouraging creativity experiments and looking for new things that might totally flop or that might be the future, who knows? Uh, but it's worth keeping uh, a look at it at least. You know, I don't yeah. think that's to just dismiss. Uh, there are a lot of challenges uh, that need to be solved. Uh, so let's look at it a bit more. I don't think everything gonna become NFTs. I don't think everything gonna become Web three. Absolutely, it's more complicated. But I feel like there's probably some interesting use cases. But there, there will be some emergence of those use cases. There, there will be some use cases that will win against all the other use cases, and those ones will become the next yeah. standards and the next, you know, um, big thing for companies to 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 chase after. Could could be. Now back to the same question: Why? 
<laughs> Where is the value? Why do you need an NFT, for example? You know? If you have a good answer to that question, I'm like, sure, keep doing it. A lot of people sometimes just can't answer the question why. You know, they, they, they take a new tech and do things they could do already in the past with an older tech. And just because they use a new tech, they assume it's good. Sometimes, you, you know, sometimes you don't need to reinvent the wheel. But if you come to me with like a totally new use cases uh, with NFT or like a dramatically improved use case with NFT, why not? Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank, Thank you, you for all. being with us. Bye-bye. Ciao. Through accessible insights, a solid network of support, and recognizing truly outstanding achievements near or far. Big or small, we're in this together. AIXR.